0: You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings, gentle listeners, and God's blessing on you. Wherever this podcast finds you, Christ is risen. What does it mean to share the gospel? That's what we think of as at the center of our Lord's Great Commission— He was launching a great missionary movement that continues to this day in which the disciples of Jesus go into the world sharing the good news of salvation for sinners. And indeed, we're right to think this way. But here's a question for you. Why didn't Jesus actually say it that way? (laughs) Why didn't Jesus say, for example, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, sharing with them the good news of what I have done for the salvation of sinners. Why, Why didn't he say that? Why instead does Jesus say, Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Why does Jesus focus in the Great Commission on teaching, teaching the nation's obedience, or if you will, what they are to do for him. Well, in the sermon that I'm going to republish in today's podcast, I'm going to answer that question essentially this way. Folks, it's because the gospel is something bigger than what many understand, and it has a more glorious outcome for us and the world uh, than many of us realize. Jesus is actually presenting to us. The ultimate goal of all missionary endeavors in the world. Uh, It's something the Apostle Paul, in his words, calls bringing about the obedience of faith among all the nations. So it's this strong emphasis on obedience in the Great Commission that, well, frankly, it presents a challenge to many modern evangelicals' notion of what constitutes true Christian discipleship, and for that matter, uh, what constitutes faithful Christian preaching and teaching. But it's for that reason all the more important for us to hear what Jesus actually said uh, there in his final words that we call the Great Commission. In addition to making those points, I'm also in this sermon going to seek to stir up my hearers to realize that God has given all of us a powerful tool for advancing Christ's kingdom that is, our words, if we are willing uh, to open our mouths on behalf of Christ. Again, this sermon was originally preached at Resurrection in 2010 at the conclusion of a much longer sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. I trust it will be uh, a blessing to you today. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. It was on a mountain top that Jesus stood with his great enemy, Satan, at the beginning of his ministry. We're told in Matthew 4 that they looked together at all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of those kingdoms, and Satan there made a proposal. To our Lord. Jesus, if he would give to Satan, instead of to his father, worship and service, then right then and there Satan would give to Jesus the nations for himself. Jesus could right then and there, if you will, been clothed in the authority of the nations. That was the last and greatest of Satan's temptations of our Lord. It was the greatest because it held out to our Lord the very thing that he desired more than anything else. It's the nations given to him. But our Lord was unmoved on that mountain. And he chose instead, as we have watched all over again in our series in Matthew to go the path of suffering and death in order to gain the nations. On the other side of his death and his resurrection, it's our Lord's wish to meet his disciples again on a mountain. Was it the same mountain? We don't know. But now, on this mountain, he is clothed with all authority and power not only over the earth, but in heaven as well. And so again, if you will, with the kingdoms spread out below them, from that mountain, Jesus calls upon his disciples to gain for him the nations, the very things Satan once had promised him. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing And teaching. Now we have sought to be staggered by the immensity of this commission. It is truly great, this commission that Jesus gives. And it's also been sobering to us, it's been arresting to us to see the modesty of the means, seemingly, that he gives to his disciples to accomplish this immense task baptism and teaching, water. And words. These will be the means of transforming men and nations into Christ's servants. The hymn that we frequently sing references those two means. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. We've been realizing that these were not useless tools. These were nothing less than tools of dominion that by his blessing would bring about the success of this global conquest Jesus holds out for his disciples to gain. We've taken up the first of the tools, baptism, and today we return to the matter of words in global conquest. Next week, We'll be considering the prospects of success for this great commission, and we will bring our series in Matthew to an end on that note. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This morning, let's look first at teaching as a tool of dominion, and then we'll break that down into three implications for us as a church. That's how we'll spend our time this morning, and first, then let's speak about teaching as a tool of dominion. I trust that you have long ago been pointed to this passage in God's Word as giving us the foundation for what we call the great missionary enterprise of the church. When men go throughout the earth to all the nations preaching the gospel, they're fulfilling this great commission. It involves taking good news to the nations. You'd be right to think of the great commission as giving a foundation for the missionary enterprise. But it's very possible that as you come to the Great Commission, and as we go to it again this morning, with the thought of preaching the gospel, you'll be confused by this way of speaking that Jesus gives us in verse 20. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, to some people, that doesn't sound like the preaching of the gospel. The Great Commission gives us the foundation for taking good news to the nations, preaching the gospel, the good news. But Jesus, when he actually says what he says there on the mountain, when he actually utters the Great Commission, he tells them to teach all that I have commanded them and commanded you and to teach them to observe those things. That's a puzzler for some. Why doesn't Jesus, taking this opportunity to inaugurate the great commission or the great preaching of the gospel, say to them instead, tell them about my suffering. Tell them about my death. Tell them about my resurrection. Tell them about the forgiveness of sins that I've purchased for them on the cross. Tell them that they can be reconciled to God. Bring them this good news. Instead of all this, he says, go and preach obedience to his commandments. Well, let me say there's a couple of ways to understand the right response to that very good question. The first thing you need to recognize is that the preaching of good news, what we would call evangelism, is already been presupposed in the first of those two tools. He says, go, make disciples, baptizing them. As the disciples went out baptizing, and we see this in the book of Acts very obviously, they went out understanding that there would be some things necessary to say in order to bring people to the place where they could appropriately be baptized. This is presupposed. The disciples, as they went out in the book of Acts, didn't just start taking water with them and throwing it at passersby. They understood that in order to baptize a man and his household, you needed to explain some things to him. You needed to explain, most obviously, the significance of baptism. You needed to explain about Jesus, his death, his resurrection. That's what baptism is into. They needed to preach the good news of forgiveness of sins, that it can be had by repentance and baptism. And so, on the basis of that, what we would call evangelism, evangelistic preaching, men were baptized. You might say that evangelism is the work of proclaiming the things necessarily embodied in baptism. That's what evangelism is. It's telling people that they may be forgiven if they submit themselves to Christ in repentance and baptism. Transformation of life is summed up in that sign. And so, Jesus isn't leaving this out. Jesus has presupposed this when he tells the disciples to baptize. And as you study the kind of preaching the disciples did in the book of Acts, leading up to the moments when men and women and their children were baptized, you see very clearly what many of us would call the gospel of forgiveness of sins and a new life in Christ being preached. But those things are not the things Jesus is talking about in verse 20. In verse 20, second thing you need to recognize in order to understand what Jesus is doing is that he, in verse 20, is talking about the ultimate goal of the Great Commission, his ultimate aim in sending these people out, his ultimate aim is not that the nations merely become forgiven, merely become those who are rightly baptized. His ultimate end is that the nations would become servants of their rightful king. That's his ultimate end. The one is a means to the other. You're forgiven of your sins in order that you might be restored to relationship with Christ and become a servant of His like you were supposed to be from the beginning. And so Jesus, when He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, is speaking perfectly consistent with what these tools are. They're tools of dominion. That's something Jesus has been very clear about from the very beginning, hasn't it? Jesus has made crystal clear from his very first sermon, at least that's recorded in Matthew's gospel, that to be a disciple of his means surrendering your own will and submitting it to his. Remember how he closes that Sermon on the Mount? He says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, like a man whose house is built on a rock. He's comparing the obedient disciple of Christ to one whose house is built on a rock and it can withstand any kind of judgment that's to come, any kind of storm or tempest. Conversely, the one who hears these words and does not do them is like a man whose house is built on sand. And when the storm comes, the house is crushed and he has the storm of God's judgment in mind. So we're not surprised when the Apostle Paul, as we saw some years ago at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, could scarcely speak more self-consciously of this commission, though he wasn't there on that mountain, as an apostle when he says, my privilege as an apostle is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations. This is the big view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The big view is that He is Lord, and salvation may be found in Him, and salvation will come to the earth through Him. And it is our privilege to bow to this King. So Jesus says, Go to them with the words that teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is, brothers and sisters, through and through the nature of Christian discipleship. This was brought out to me in a very surprising, uh, contrasting way as I was reading an article this past week in the current issue of Christianity Today. The article was actually about The trends that we see from time to time of those who have seemingly uh, knowingly embraced Christianity and then have turned from Christianity even to other religions. You're accustomed to knowing and seeing those who've come to Christianity from other religions. But this article is about when it happens the opposite way. It was an article about apostasy. And there was one particular individual who was quoted as having turned from Christianity, of all things, to witchcraft. He'd become a Wiccan. His testimony is this. Ultimately, why I left is that the Christian God demands that you submit to his will. In Wicca, it's just the other way around. Your will is paramount. We believe in gods and goddesses, but the deities we choose to serve are based on our wills. Could you have it more eloquently put, both a faithful characterization of Christianity and ultimately, whether it's made clear or not, all other religions that are false, that draws the lines quite Nicely, in fact. It's profoundly true. Jesus has not disguised us the least. Christianity involves obedience. Obedience to His commandments. He is, after all, a king. So these words are a tool of dominion. Let's look, then, for the rest of our time at three implications Of this fact. They're all about the nature of obedience. And they are these, I'll give them to you in advance. First, obedience is a mark of a true disciple of Christ. Secondly, obedience is the goal of the church for herself. And thirdly, obedience is the goal of the church for the world. It's all about obedience. When Jesus says, Here's the way you make disciples, you baptize them, and all that's involved in that. And then you set to work teaching them, teaching them all that I have commanded you, he has very clearly in mind a whole process, a process that to be on the receiving end of involves learning. A disciple is someone who is, in an ongoing way, learning obedience. Now, that's a very important thing to bear in mind, especially to bear in mind in connection with what was said last week. Baptism, we saw last week, is a means of marking out disciples, and it's the means by which God uses, in part, to actually convey the grace of salvation to those whom Christ draws to himself by the Spirit. When baptism happens, we can think in very objective ways, disciples are made, But, baptism is not the only mark of discipleship. It's a once-for-all, rather objective mark. There's a second mark of discipleship. It's an ongoing mark. It's a bit more subjective, admittedly, but it's vitally important. It's also found here in the Great Commission, in the words that define discipleship. It is simply a life of discipleship obedience. What is a disciple? Well, you begin by saying it's somebody who's baptized. You don't stop there. A Christian is someone who's baptized and is learning obedience. Obedience is a way of life and learning, growing in obedience is of the essence of discipleship. One of the implications of this, brothers and sisters, is that without that second subjective evidence of discipleship, the first mark of discipleship is worthless. There are not a few men and women, boys and girls, who have been marked with the sign of baptism. And whatever their early days of initiation in the church looked like, They've ceased to be those who care day-by-day ways about obedience to the king. Jesus knew well that this would be true of some of his so-called disciples. He says to the Jews who'd believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You hear the word? Abiding in His Word is a beautiful way of talking about obedience. And so, it's very important for us to recognize that this issue of discipleship is an issue for every one of you on a day-by-day basis. You're not to think of anything in your past as somehow settling the issue whether you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, whether it's your baptism, whether it's an extraordinary experience, whether it's what you perceive to be genuine faith. If that does not continue in your life to this day in the form of obedience to the Lord Jesus, those things were but the means to the end of your becoming a faithful servant of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the word that is used to describe so-called disciples who have objective marks of that and are numbered by men as disciples, and yet who, whether openly or hiddenly, are not living a life of obedience. You know the name for that. It's called nominal Christianity. It's a very common thing. It would be a great mistake for me to assume that as common as it is, it's not represented right here this morning. You're a nominal Christian here this morning. If you've made a profession of faith and perhaps been baptized and perhaps have had your church affiliations and perhaps done your token things, maybe like even coming to church like this morning... You're a nominal Christian if those things are all true of you. And yet, it is not the heartbeat of your life to grow in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Such that there are things that you do these days you didn't once even think to do, but you've come to do them knowing that you were wrong not to render obedience to the Lord Jesus in those ways. It's a mark of discipleship to be obedient. I'm speaking to anyone here this morning who has everything about being a disciple of Christ except obedience. In an ongoing way, I say to you, have everything but the essential thing. Obedience is of the essence of discipleship. Elder Willingham made very profound observation to you earlier this morning. Two kinds of people. Sinners and repentant sinners. Indeed. Disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a perfectly obedient person. But with repentance for sin comes the desire for obedience and success in it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first implication of this second word, or pardon me, this second tool of dominion is that obedience is the mark of a true disciple of Christ. Secondly, obedience is the goal of the church for itself. Sometimes you'll hear people describe local churches as specializing in teaching ministry. Different churches have different ministries We each rightly, in our context and according to our gifts, have different ways in which we use our gifts. This is a glorious thing. Sometimes you'll hear church say, our ministry is teaching. Well, that's a wonderful thing. But it's to be the mark of every church. That teaching is the focus, the priority of the church. That's the calling because of this commission Jesus gives of every church church, and it's the teaching of a particular kind. It's teaching that leads to holiness. It aims relentlessly for godliness, for conformity to the will of God in heaven and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's teaching like the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that sermon? You you remember what Jesus does? From beginning to end, Jesus is laying out what it looks like, this righteousness of the kingdom. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, his righteousness, this righteousness that I'm preaching to you about. The ministry of the word in every church should look like the ministry of teaching that Jesus himself performed. Jesus was a holiness preacher. That's what he was. We call certain kinds of preachers holiness preachers these days. Whatever connotations you have for that, that's the kind of preacher Jesus was in his earthly ministry. And that's what he calls his disciples to be as they take dominion in the earth. Do you think Paul got that when he gives a charge, a charge particularly about preaching and teaching to his colleague, Timothy, when he wrote, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Then he goes on to say, and there's going to be people who don't like that, and You need to resist the urge to give them what they like. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Doesn't that sound like Paul's taking his marching orders from this word from the mountain? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. If you from time to time feel some resistance to that kind of teaching. You are not alone. Most Christians do. All Christians at some point or another do. You're not alone. Some have actually allowed that resistance to that kind of preaching to take the form of certain uh, ideas about what preaching and teaching should look like in the church. Some go dangerously close, come dangerously close to asserting that the preaching of the church is to emphasize and always come to the issue of what Christ has done on our behalf, not what we're to do on His behalf. There is much of that thinking in the church in our day. Just preach the gospel. It's often heard, even within... Some Reformed circles. My brothers and sisters, what you do on Sundays, what you do in this room, should be to revel in what Christ has done. Do not most of our hymns, even our psalms, our prayers, surely our sacraments, and yes, much of the scriptures that are preached speak to what Christ has done indeed. Amen. So may it be so. But Jesus has said, teach them to serve all that I have commanded you. And it would be wrong for us to expect the teaching, the preaching, to be limited to what Christ has done for us. That would actually be a rather narrow view of the gospel. Because the gospel is not only that Jesus died for your sins, but that He's been raised. Consequently, He's been given all authority and power, and nations, men and nations, are invited to yield to Him and indeed summoned to submit to Him. Jesus, according to what He says here, final words to His disciples, would not be honored. To merely be spoken of in the church, in terms of what he has done, he would be honored by our speaking of what may and must be done for him in response to his commandments. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, it, it isn't easy to sit under this kind of preaching and teaching. I realize that. Scriptures, according to the Confession, tell us what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. This is the great ultimate end of all preaching and teaching. Even what you're taught about what Christ has done for you has as an end, has as its great end, You're being transformed to the image of the Christ who has died for you. We who are Presbyterians tend to love teaching. We love to learn. Generally speaking, that's something we're fond of. Studying the Bible, studying doctrine, those things get us going. We are, after all, a pointy head group, aren't we? We have certain dispositions towards certain intellectual achievements. Hear me, please. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Merely learning new things about what the Bible teaches. The learning Jesus is speaking about, the teaching we're to bring ourselves under, is a teaching to obey, to observe the commandments of God. That is another thing altogether. It doesn't matter how pointy your head is. That comes hard to us. It comes hard to all Christians to want to come back again and again and again and surrender ourselves to the Word of God and say, in effect, how have I not yet learned how to obey? This has everything to do with the goal of the church for itself, obedience. Lastly, I said to you, obedience is the mark of a true disciple. Secondly, obedience is the goal of a church for itself. Thirdly, obedience is the goal of the church for the world. I'll ask you this question again. I asked it to you earlier. How do you teach a nation? How do you teach a nation? Go make disciples of all the nations. How do you teach a nation? Well, we must begin with the pulpit. Fathers have been right all throughout the generations in recognizing the unique power of the preaching and teaching ministry of the pulpit. Those who would be like these men who first heard these words, ordained to preach. Yes, it chiefly is that nations are brought into submission to the commandments of Christ through the labors of gospel ministers. You know, there was a time when kings in England, for example, actually actually recognized that they too needed to submit to the preaching of the word. They would have court-appointed preachers. These were the days of John Owen and such nobles. and They would sit and listen to the preaching of the word. As the king submitted himself to the preaching of the word, he would rule in conformity with that word and nations would be shaped by the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we ought to pray that our leaders will recognize their duty to submit to the pulpit ministries of faithful churches. And that would lead us, brothers and sisters, to be reminded This is your great opportunity as Christians who are yourselves given a reason for being by these words. You have an opportunity to bring those who are not under the preaching of the Word into this place. And bring them here expressly that they may be told how they can become servants of the King. Don't, don't, as you invite them, don't give them a bait and switch. Don't tell them that... uh, It'll make their week go better. It may solve the problems they've been sharing with you at the workplace. All those other things. Yes, you should talk about the benefits of the gospel. You should talk about the benefits of serving Christ. But their benefits of serving Christ tell them that all, things, all kinds of things get out of joint when we're not laboring for the king. And Bring them here, brothers and sisters. Bring them here, please in fulfillment of this great commission. But let me say to you, to disciple a whole nation, you need more than pulpits as much as they're the primary means. You need more than preachers of the gospel duly ordained. What does it take to make a disciple to teach a whole nation? Well, it takes every single one of you here, that's for sure. And every single one of every other person sitting on this Sabbath morning in a pew, a faithful church, it takes every single one of you. Jesus, in this tool in particular, has given every single Christian the weapon by which the kingdom is now advanced in this gospel age. You, you you caught that, right? Words Words The ones you know how to make the ones you are adept at using Words Mere Words How does an everyday ordinary Christian fulfill the Great Commission? Brothers and sisters, hear me, please. You open your mouth. You speak. You speak to those who are Christians and need to learn more about the commandments of Christ. You disciple one another. You mentor one another. You commit yourself to relationships that are not about you, but are about fulfilling the Great Commission, teaching those who don't yet know all that Christ commanded Great Commission is fulfilled by everyday ordinary Christians when they, of all things, open their mouth to talk to people who, in this society and time and age, call themselves Christians, but clearly by their lives have nothing true servanthood for the King. And you do your own version of what Paul called Timothy to do you reprove, you exhort. You admonish. Don't leave that to your preacher. He doesn't know all the people of this nation that you know. You lovingly get in their face and claim the Lordship of Christ on their lives. Not necessarily all at once. Not in some necessarily formulaic way. Just by doing this, Open your mouth, man, woman, child. Use these things that you learned how to use very young. Words. It's just words, Dean. Words are among the most powerful of all God's gifts to us. They're not like sticks and stones, they won't break bones. Oh, they do greater damage than that. Words crush men. Break hearts. Bring down the Goliaths of our day. Words are weapons. So this is the note I want to end on this morning. You're recognizing... What Jesus calls for in this great commission, immense task, he identifies tools, one in particular, that is there in your hand. You brought it with you. You'll go from this place armed with it. Use it as a tool of dominion over men and nations in this world. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.